Hey, Forge family. Before we begin podcast number seven, let me say that once again, I'm, I'm blessed by you all. Last week in podcast number six, there was an illustration that James used of a really needy brother and sister who were dressed totally inadequately and were chronically hungry, and they come into the fellowships that James has. So last Sunday at Forge, here comes a man from a Facebook referral with some great needs in his family. He was welcomed. He was hugged. He was invited to stay to eat with us. He was prayed for, and he was handed cash for immediate needs. So, Forge family, that looks like, that tastes like, that smells like New Testament church. In our last podcast, in James 2, Verses 14 to 26, James continued his deep concerns for how the poor and the wealthy were relating in his congregations. He flat says, works that demonstrate your faith in Christ are essential, part of sanctification, part of your ongoing salvation with God at work in you. Now, James then set up the diatribe scenes of an imaginary opponent who holds that Having faith alone without any of that evidence of a changed life is enough to save him. And then James goes at that imaginary opponent with the logic and the ethics and the historical examples from Scripture to summarily crush his opponent's argument, his faith alone position, saying that won't work to save him. So, Forge, did Holy Spirit give you any spy-out-the-land assignments this week where he's, a, he's prepared hearts to change sides, if you were, from dark to light, to drop their immorality and rush to Jesus? Did you think of any who you know or that you encountered who are destitute in resources or in spirit? So keep at it. Keep looking. They're out there. Let's pray. Father God, you're the one who provides. We want to be ready to pass on your provisions of resources and point to the grace that saves. Please open our eyes and our ears. You, Father, sacrifice for us. Get us ready to minister to each other and to the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Forge, go collect your your James text. And your, and your notebook, textbook, if you will. Here we go. We're in James 3, verses 1 to 12. Let's read it together. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they be so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also, The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame 
by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out the same opening from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs, neither can salt water produce fresh. So in verse 1 here, James introduces the issue of speaking and its risks. Teachers in the ancient world were often held in high respect, and, and some in James's congregations may have been swept up in the push to step up, to, to change their status and become a teacher of the word of God. But, James says, too many were attempting to teach what they did not comprehend. James, uh, Janice and I saw some of that in the outwash of the Jesus movement here on the San Francisco Peninsula almost 40 years ago. Uh, as charged up, changed, liberated, filled with grace and truth, young men and women who really knew God the Father, God the Son, and a lot about the holy book. They, they, these, some of these young teachers splintered off into exclusive Bible studies that, that they taught themselves, and they were accountable to no one. See, every godly generation that's rising needs to see that teaching is freighted with responsibility, not privilege. And anyone who teaches knows the pressures of evaluation and criticism. James is concerned that his teachers learn accurately and they pass on exactly. Now, have we seen, as we've seen in, in James' text, his assemblies were meetings in synagogues and homes, and from the Jewish heritage side, or most of his congregations, the rabbis were literally called, quote, my great one, unquote. And it was taught that your duty as an individual to your rabbi exceeded your duty to your own parents. If both your parents and the rabbi were imprisoned, the rabbi was to be ransomed first. Rabbis were to be paid, but they were to work a trade with their hands. However, there was vast merit and special piety accorded to anyone who would take in a rabbi and care for all their needs. This elevation of teachers in the synagogue led to a slide towards spiritual tyranny. Outward displays of religious piety and the love of high position, and praise. James 
warns his people, stop. Too many of you are aspiring to teach. Paul would probably say, not enough of you are gifted as teachers. If you're not gifted as a teacher, don't go there. James is concerned that where speech is the means of communication, there's a high danger of misstatements, of amplifying or embroidering your speech, and somehow that veers from the truth that you're trying to teach. Now, we all, let me say it again, we all have difficulty with telling the whole truth all the time. And as a result, teachers incur a greater judgment if they fail. Verse 2, James says, the truth is, we all fail. We all stumble. We all trip up with our tongue. And then he says, if we did not stumble, we would then be sinless. But only Jesus qualifies for that accolade. Further, we of evangelical faith too often speak the truth but fall short of love in that speaking. And too often, celebrity teachers are of the do-as-I-say school rather than Paul's example of do-as-I-do. Here in verse 2, James is introducing the concept that the control of the tongue controls the rest of the body. And James is holding teachers responsible for the health of their congregations. James begins a flurry, if you will, of illustrations from nature and the marketplace. He wants people to get the images set deep in their soul and spirit. In verse 3, James points out that a, a bit, you will, a metal linkage attached to the bridle and the reins when inserted into a horse's mouth and set behind the horse's teeth, all the way in the back, on the sensitive gums of the horse, allows direct training control and control of this huge animal with a simple lifting and turning of the reins. It's with minimal force. The rider is in control. Likewise, a big ship is steered by a tiny rudder. See, the, a vertical door-sized panel of wood that was controlled by ropes to the shaft of the steersman's, you know, uh, that he controls. He stands there in the back of the boat, and he would shift this, this shaft back and forth to be able to uh, send that big shift on any course that he chose. In fair weather, in light winds, one man could control the whole ship. In violent storms and winds and waves, it might take three or four men to have enough strength and to get enough <laughs> control of that bucking you know, uh, uh, steering shaft to, to be able to keep the course in the right direction. All with this tiny little runner paddle, rudder panel. Now, James comes to his point. The human tongue, which... Chuck Swindoll has labeled, quote, a two-ounce slab of muscle and mucous membrane, unquote, is tiny, really. I mean, it, it would fit in your hand. And yet it boasts of great things. 
Let me read to you Curtis Vaughn's statements about the tongue. It can sway men to violence or it can move them to the noblest actions. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing, and soothe the dying. Or it can crush the human spirit, destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate, and bring nations to the brink of war. Let me, uh, let me give you an example of that latter charge, if you will. Paul Harvey of radio fame in the last century wrote this. On a night, Saturday night in 1899, four newspaper reporters in Denver, Colorado, found themselves together on the platform at the, of the railroad station. They represented... The Post, The Times, The Republican, and The Rocky Mountain News. Al Stevens, Jack Tourney, John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire had been dispatched to get a story for publishing on the front page of Sunday morning's edition. And they were standing together on the platform hoping that a celebrity would arrive by train or any other means into Denver. And none arrived. The reporters started commiserating. For them, no news was bad news. All of them were facing empty-handed return trips to their city desks. Al Stevens declared he was going to make up a story and hand it in. The other three laughed. Someone suggested they all walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer. They did. Jack Tourney said, Al's idea about faking a story well, was something that he really liked. Why didn't each one of them fake a story and, and get off the hook? But then John Lewis and Hal Wilshire said, no, no, you're, you guys are thinking too small. Four half-baked fake stories didn't cut it. What they needed was one real whopper they could all use. Then they had another round of beer. A phony domestic story would be too easy to check on, so they began discussing foreign angles that would be difficult to verify. China. Hmm. Now, China was distant enough, it was agreed. They would write about China. John leaned forward, gesturing dramatically in the dim light of the bar room. He said, try this one on, he said. A group of American engineers stopping over in Denver en route to China. The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall. Our engineers are bidding on the job. Harold was skeptical. Why would the Chinese want to destroy the Great Wall of China? And John thought for a moment. They said, well, they're tearing down the ancient boundary to symbolize international goodwill and to welcome foreign trade. Then they had another round of beer. At 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out the details of their preposterous story. After leaving the Oxford bar, they went over to the Windsor Hotel. They would each sign, they would sign four fictitious names to the hotel register. They would instruct the desk clerk to tell anyone who asked that four New Yorkers had arrived that evening, had been interviewed by reporters, and had left early the next morning for California. 
the Denver newspapers ran the story on Sunday morning. All four of them. Front page. In fact, the Times headline that Sunday read, Great Chinese Wall Doomed. Peking Seeks World Trade. Of course, the story was a phony. A ludicrous fabrication concocted by four capricious and tipsy newsmen in a hotel bar. But their story was taken seriously. And it was picked up and expanded by newspapers in the eastern U.S. and then by newspapers abroad. When the Chinese themselves learned that the Americans were sending a demolition crew to tear down their national monument, they were indignant and some were enraged. Particularly incensed were members of a secret society, a volatile group of Chinese patriots who were already wary of foreign intervention they, inspired by the story, exploded, rampaged against the foreign embassies in Peking and slaughtered hundreds of missionaries. In two months, 12,000 troops from six countries joined forces and invaded China with the purpose of protecting their own countrymen. The bloodshed that followed, sparked by a journalistic hoax invented in a barroom in Denver, became the white-hot international conflagration known to every high school history student as the Boxer Rebellion. There you go. The power of the tongue. The rest of verse 5 says, Look, see, behold, how great a wood this is literally how it reads. How great a wood is set ablaze by how small a spark. Now, think with me. The first sin after the fall in the Garden of Eden. Oh, so the first sin was to eat the forbidden fruit. The first sin after the fall happens when God questions Adam regarding eating the forbidden fruit. And Adam slanders God as ultimately responsible. He said, that woman you gave... To be with me, she gave me the tree from the tree to eat. Thereby severing his relationship with God further and severing his relationship with the woman. All of his tongue. So like rudders of ships, like bits in the mouths of horses, like sparks that produce wildfires and like the tongues, Relatively tiny things produce results that are all out of proportion to the beginnings. Give me another illustration here. At 9 o'clock, one Sunday evening, October 8th, 1871, a cow that was being milked kicked over a small lantern and started the great Chicago fire. That fire blackened three and a half miles of the city, destroying 17,000 buildings before it was checked by gunpowder explosions on the south line of the fire. Fire lasted two days, killed 250 people. Ironically, that was not the greatest fire in the Midwest that year. Historians tell us that on that same day, in that dry autumn, a spark ignited a raging fire in the north woods of Wisconsin, which burned for an entire month 
taking more lives than the Chicago fire. That firestorm destroyed billions of yards of precious timber, all from one spark. And then here locally, you know, we have the results of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, coming up April 18th. You know, we commemorate that on April 18th. Yes, buildings were shaken and collapsed, but the fires raged for days. <clears throat> the net was, there were over 3,000 who died. One careless word, one offhand statement, one bit of innuendo, one fake news item can ruin a career, crush a reputation, and destroy a life's work. In verse 6, James continues, the tongue establishes itself in the midst of a world of unrighteousness. It expresses it. Okay, the, the word that's used is cosmos, okay, meaning a fallen, sinful world system. And by that fallen, sinful world system, the tongue looses a world of, of wrongdoing, using our other body parts as well, controlling our other parts, body parts as well. And it continually corrupts, it stains, it defiles, and it draws on internal forces within us to continue to do so. Verse 6 includes the words trochos genios, meaning the wheel of being. Okay, that is set on fire by the tongue. Now this passage in verse 6 may be one of the toughest passages to translate, interpret, and understand in the New Testament. At least my reading of volumes on the wheel of life, on Pythagorean cyclical reincarnation, on the Orphic mysteries, on Ezekiel's wheels and within wheels. You know, the, there's amazing suggestions that are out there of what this means. But take it from me. James want us, wants us to realize that the tongue can influence us for great good or for great evil and affect the whole course, the whole wheel, if you will, of our existence. <clears throat> James concludes verse 6 with a reference to the deep gorge southwest of Jerusalem, the valley of Hinnom. And it was in that gorge that the Canaanites sacrificed their firstborn children on the flaming idol of Molech a truly vile, wicked practice that was perpetuated by the Israelites until King Josiah stepped in, destroyed the altars and the, and, and, the, and the idols and proclaimed that that land was so defiled and unclean that it was fit only for a dumping ground for dead animals, executed criminals, and garbage, all to be consumed by a never-ending fire. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus relates Gehenna, which is an Aramaic phrase for the valley of Hinnom. He relates that to hell, a place where the maggot never dies and the fire is never quenched. That never dead, never quenched stuff fuels 
and unrighteous tongue. In verses 7 and 8, James points out that even in the ancient world, all manner of animals had been tamed and trained by men. But no one can tame the tongue. The word for tame is demazo. It means to domesticate, to subdue, to tame, to bring under control. And it's that same word that's used in the account of Jesus as he crosses the Sea of Galilee to Gadara and there encounters the demoniac, the one possessed of legion, who they had other, other men had come and they had tried to subdue him. That's the word demazo. But he was so wild and so frenzied and so out of control that they finally fled bleeding until Jesus comes and casts out that legion of demons. Verse 8 further states that the tongue not only, is not only uncontrollable and unstable. It's the same word that he uses to describe the waves in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 8. Okay? That same tongue is fired by hell. And it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. David, the psalmist, says, Psalm 140, verse 1, Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continue, continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Then James says, verse 9, the same tongue is in use by us. Hmm. It's in use by us. And by his, the people that he's writing to, scattered through the synagogues. That same tongue speaks blessings to our Lord and Father. See, in, in, in Jewish tradition, whenever God's name was spoken, even obliquely, the, the required response from every mouth was, Blessed be he! And the especially devout Jews repeated the Shemona Eshrech three times a day. It was a collection of 18 blessings, all beginning with, Blessed be thou, O Lord! And then James turns and says, With that same tongue that we bless God with, we curse other men and other women made in the likeness of God, just like we are. James concludes verse 10 as brethren, brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. Our family was greatly helped, you know, it's continued, but greatly helped 18 years ago by Dr. Paul Cox, who taught and modeled that with our mouths, when we are thankful, when we're positive, when we're uplifting, when we're complimentary, when we're encouraging, we are blessing with our mouth. But when we gripe, when we complain, when we're critical, when we, we get snarky and negative, when we discourage and tear down, we're cursing with our mouth. See, what comes out of our mouth reveals our heart. Finally, James concludes this section in verses 11 and 12 by, by gathering up a bunch of, of images and remembrances of Palestinian life. All these people had started out as Palestinian. 
And then they were scattered out across the, the Roman Empire into the synagogues. And he says, you remember the artesian springs of pure water? And you remember the, the stinking, sulfurous, poisonous ooze from some of those springs in the Rift Valley over in the Jordan Valley. They're not the same, are they? They are unmixed. They're separate. One is pure and one is polluted. And then he refers to agriculture. You know, he refers to, to the fig tree and to olives and to grapes. You know, those are the primary crops that Israel, that, that Palestine produced. But they're all distinct crops that come from a mother plant. They don't cross species. Fig trees don't produce grapes. Okay? Olive trees don't produce figs. And lastly, he talks about the salt. Salt can't produce fresh water. Salt water doesn't produce fresh water. The, the Dead Sea, with its incredible, unpotable toxicity, can't produce fresh water. All you have to do is go to the Dead Sea, put your finger in it, touch your tongue. That will suck your eyeballs into your, into your ears. Okay? And your, and your mouth will come up and cover your nose. I mean, it, it just you just... You pucker so profoundly. It's like, it's like sucking on a styptic pencil. There's so many salts and chemicals that you, it, just, it just shakes you. It's, it's potent stuff. Okay, And he's saying that salt water cannot produce fresh water. And his illustration is a tongue that is that polluted is not going to produce fresh things. So Ford's family, James leaves us all in a stuck place. We see the reality of our own failures with our mouths. And we lack power to change. We need to look and rely on help from outside humanity. Let's pray. Almighty God, we prostrate ourselves before you. Too often we are one way in public and another way in private. And you see it all. Thank you for mercy triumphing over justice. Our own tongues condemn us, but your son, Jesus Christ, washes us clean. and makes us whole and forgives us. And your spirit of life imparts power and wisdom to us to begin and to begin again to cleanse our tongues, our thoughts, and our actions. And by the Spirit, take control so that we express you and we mirror you. Keep sending Holy Spirit to help us and lead us in a righteous way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, Forge family, you are beloved. We'll see you soon.